What's going on, fam? Welcome back to another episode of Pop Muse, the pop music trivia show of your favorite stars. And if it's your first time with us, we scour the internet and find lesser known facts about some of the big names, legends, megastars, or what I always say, some cool cats from the international and national stage to fill you in on. And let's see by the end of this episode if you know as much as you think you know about some of these big icons in music. I'm TJ Reed, and I got my brother again in the studio, Liu Yan. What's going on, man? Hey, good morning. It's always a great day when I get to record pop music with you. Yeah, yeah. And I have a relatively devious smile on my face today because I somehow don't think you are going to guess the person that I have for you today and for all of our listeners out there. I think it could be hit or miss, but this guy, this group, they give awesome music. It's almost timeless. It's, it represents an, a golden age in the sound of American music, but it has a modern twist to it. And I don't know, I just can't really describe it, but great music. And I'm looking forward to putting you up on this musician. Mm-hmm. Well, you actually have warned me, <laughs> and this is going to be a very difficult one. And I had no doubt I am going to have a hard time because as we have made it very clear, it is one of your biggest pleasures in life to stump me. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm very glad that I could provide that kind of entertainment. Yeah, so how about you, man? Who you got for us today? Well, she's actually one of the most influential pop singers in Chinese music history. So I'm very surprised that we have never covered her on this program. Mm. So let's just say that I'm very glad nobody did her before. Wow, interesting. I kind of feel like I should know if she's that big, I should at least know her name. And I'm looking forward to hopefully getting it right. But before we get to the trivia, man, of course, I hope you didn't think that I let you off of the hook. I got another question I want to ask you. Oh, I can never get one of those right. <laughs> I know. So my question for you today is, what is an avocado's favorite music? Avocado's favorite music? Yeah. Well, doesn't ring any bells. <laughs> uh, no guess, huh? No. Drawing a blank here. <laughs> So the answer is, what is an avocado's favorite music? The answer, guac and roll. Oh, okay. <laughs> Silly, but interesting. Yeah, love that cheese. You got to love that cheese. But before we get cracking, folks, we want to let you know our disclaimer here. Everything that we find on the show is purely internet-based. So if there are any discrepancies or any fact checks, Please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you, and we would love to update that correct information on a later episode. So with that out of the way, my man, I think I'm going to go ahead and jump into fact number one, and my source is predominantly from Wikipedia. This artist grew up in a place called Blackburn, all right? His mother was a professional cabaret or jazz singer, and his father was a Portuguese guitarist, all right? Hmm. Uh, and I guess he didn't meet his biological father until 2001, so years later. Right. All right. He had an identical twin at birth, but his brother passed away uh, a few weeks later. Um, he was raised by a single mother, and his artist stated that he had an itinerant childhood. Okay. So he accompanied his mom to a lot of her uh, performances. 
So, yeah, it sounds pretty straightforward for, uh, you know, kids that grew up with musical parents. In a 1997 interview with his mother, she stated that he was an entertainer by nature and um, a lot of times going over the top at school plays and performances. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Ahem, all right. Huh? At, Ahem. Yeah, and I can kind of see that in his, you know, his representation when he's doing music. At the age of 15, following an argument with his mom, he left his house and was temporarily homeless. So I guess he must have said something really bad because she kicked him out and he was uh, on the streets. And during that time, he was in conflict with the law and he committed, you know, several small crimes at that time. So, yeah, that's something that's also not very unusual. Um, after a near-death experience where he was attacked and stabbed and a false arrest for a crime he didn't commit, he decided to return home. Wow. Yeah, so... That's really a string of unfortunate events. Yeah. Being homeless and then, you know, being accused of something you didn't do. It sounds like, but when you're on the streets, anything can happen. And I think that um, depending on what you're into and who you're around, yeah, getting stabbed or worse is one of the ramifications of that. All right, we're going to move on to fact number two, and this is also from Wikipedia. In his teens, he got into breakdancing and soon pursued a career in music. And again, as I mentioned, I see the breakdancing style and the way that he dresses, the way that he moves. It's pretty fly. Ooh, fly. I like that. That's a very 90s term. <laughs> I know. It's old school. <laughs> So this artist was sending songs to record companies, including a hip-hop single released in 1986 under the label Street Sounds. Um, I don't think any of these clues so far are really that telling, but stay tuned. It was widely reported that he failed an audition to become a singer for the brand new Heavies prior to forming his own band, though this band denies this claim. But he sang a cover for one of their famous songs, and this was this cover that got him a record deal. So fact or fluke, nobody knows, but let's keep it moving. Okay, and this might be a, a pretty big clue. Mm. Not sure if this is going to give it away. This artist was influenced by Native American and First Nation peoples and their philosophies. This led to the creation of one of the top songs that got him on the scene. And the song covered a lot of social issues that were going on during the time. And oh, I'm not even sure if I want to say the single. Okay, so the single was called When You Gonna Learn. All right. <laughs> so that was the single. After it had recorded, he fought with his producer uh, on some of the content. And I guess the producer took out half of the lyrics and produced the song based on what was charting at the time. I think this is a kind of a frustrating thing when you're an artist, especially a new one. And you just you're so volatile and you just got so much to say. And then your boss is like, nah, we're going to cut that. Nah, this is not good enough. Or, you know, and so they have all the sway pretty much when it comes to your content. So, yeah, I can kind of see. Mm -hmm. And this is amazing because as you will get to hear a little bit later, my artist today mm. almost ran into exactly the same situation. Oh, really? Uh -huh. All right. So after the success of that single, the band was offered major label contracts. And get this, he signed a $1 million eight-album record deal with Sony Soho. That doesn't sound like a really good deal to me. 
Eight albums. Eight albums? They must really loved him and loved this band. Yeah, but only paid him a million dollars. Yeah? Uh, he was the only member under contract, but he would share his royalties with uh, his band members in accordance to their contributions as musicians. Now, he says he's the only remaining member, and I think they cycled through a lot of people during that time frame. And again, if they only paid you a million dollars... I would imagine that the people who did contribute probably weren't paid that much. And the band grew. I think you're definitely going to have contractual disputes and people are going to be mad because a million dollars is nothing in the world of music. I mean, if it was like 20, 20 million dollars. OK, but one million. That just spells trouble for me. I agree. One million dollars sounds like a lot of money for average Joes or average Janes. But for people in the showbiz, that's like really nothing. Yeah, and keep in mind, it's not two or three albums that's or one albums. album. It's mm-hmm. eight albums. So, wow, that was incredible. Uh, let's keep it moving. We're going to move on to fact number three, and this is also from Wikipedia. He's notable for owning and selling or totaling hundreds of high-profile cars, mainly sports cars. Okay, so he's got a thing. He's got the need for speed. He began a highly publicized relationship with singer, dancer, and actress Denise Van Outen, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I can't say that I've seen or heard of her. Me neither. (laughs) And around this time, you know, he's been getting, obviously with the fame, he got some public attention, media attention, and he was charged with assaulting a photographer and damaging his camera outside the Attica nightclub in London's West End. Hmm. So, yeah, he pled not guilty and the charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. But the media frenzy continues. He was questioned by police after an altercation at a premiere party for Star Wars Episode 2 Attack on the Clones outside of St. Martin's Lane Hotel, where it was alleged that a photographer kicked his 70,000 pound Bentley after he had attempted to like grab him from his car. So it seems like he's got some kind of issue with photographers Uh, His black Ferrari Enzo suffered nearly 10,000 pounds worth of damage during an altercation with a hotel chef. And I guess this hotel chef was under the influence and he had some kind of romantic interest in the girl that he was with. So I guess that chef ended up losing his job and he was jailed for 20 weeks. So that's five months. So yeah, let's move on to fact number four. And this is according to the Independent newspaper from the UK and Wikipedia. According to an article from The Independent, media sources at one point wrote that, quote, he's the one hit wonder that wasn't the cat in the hat who very quickly became the prat in the hat with the annoying voice and the daft dance and a logic that decreed environmental concerns and owning seven sports cars. Hmm. A bit biting. Oh, yeah. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Also he, sounds like a tongue twister. But he responds... I may be the Pratt in the hat. That's cool. But I drive an Aston Martin DB5. Pratt I may be, but a Pratt with an incredibly large amount of style. I'm in this absolutely gorgeous manor house with acres of quite beautiful countryside. I've got trout in the river, an organic vegetable garden. I've got my work 40 yards from my house. I don't mind being criticized, but where are they criticizing from? Which hut are they criticizing me from exactly? So, oh, <laughs> mic drop. <laughs> 
man, I'm not sure what to say about that, but I will say that you do have to have some form of toughness when you are somebody of a name. You're always going to have haters. And I think that you do have to kind of bite back, so to speak, when they attack you. Sometimes it's justified. And I'm going to I'll move on a little bit more here. At some point in his career, he was heavily criticized for, quote, ripping off 70s R&B and soul. Okay, could be a clue there. And also for being a white guy doing black music and for duplicating the Stevie Wonder sound. And I thought that that was interesting because... I mean, when I listened to the music, I didn't feel that it had any... Black influences? Well, I wouldn't say that, but I didn't imagine or picture Stevie Wonder at all when I heard his music. So that was kind of, you know, an abstract accusation, but let's keep it moving. The artist also stated that it's ironic how it's gone full circle. I'm the white guy doing black music, and all of a sudden, we've got some black entertainer sampling me. After years of people saying, oh, you're just copying Stevie Wonder... The guy himself actually told me he appreciates what I'm doing. So I was nearly in tears when I heard that. I don't know. It's uh, kind of an interesting response there. And I'm not sure how you feel about this. But on one hand, I feel like music shouldn't have a certain race painted on it or a color painted Mm -hmm. on it. On one hand, because I think that, you know, music, as you've heard many times, could qualify as being a universal language among people from, you know, all walks of life. But if I was to take the R who mm-hmm. and go to America and play it really well and make myself famous, do you think people would be like, wow, this guy's got a unique style that's specific to himself? Or would they say, oh, wow, he's doing some Chinese music very well? I mean, wh- how do you feel about that? Well, I think people will be meaner than the both <laughs> examples you just listed. Uh-huh. Most likely, uh, I think people will say, well, that's cultural appropriation. Mm. That's probably the most dominant response you will hear these days. I personally don't necessarily think uh, I'm on that team mm-hmm. because I think, like you said, uh, music is supposed to be a universal language. So as long as the artist doesn't have any like bad intentions, so as long as they give credit where credit is due, I think it's fantastic. Mm. I don't think as a white person and if you're doing the so-called traditional black music that's blasphemous i never think that Mm. i'm glad you mentioned uh giving credit where it's due because i think that that's also important if i was to take something that was cultural from another country or whatever and i don't give any credit to the people where i got it from then i think that you would have probably upset a lot of people Mm -hmm. and then you do you kind of are guilty of trying to take something that's mainstream in another society and making it and and profiting from it yeah Yeah. i think hip-hop is a very good example Mm. because a lot of white guys who are doing hip-hop these days they actually chart very well Mm -hmm. and some black people are not happy about that so that's why this cultural appropriation debate is going on yeah and historically you've got like a lot of well quite a few big name people who have taken songs they'll take the original that was done by someone that was black and they would take it and tweak it a little bit and give it their own and they would not give any credit to where it came from and so you're going to have you of course you're going to have disputes uh let Zeppelin is an example. Um, he took something from a group called Muddy Waters. Um, Phil Collins took something from the Supremes. Elvis Presley, you know, borrowed something from Big Mama Thornton. 
and the Beach Boys, they kind of ripped off a song, Surfing in the USA, from Chuck Berry. And so a lot of time they didn't give that credit. And so I guess since there is a protracted history mm. of this type of behavior or this happening, you know, I think the community, the black community sometimes can be a bit malicious when you have, you know, contemporary like white artists that do something that reflect black music. I think that might be where this is coming from. Yeah. You know, funny how when you mentioned that, the word that came to my mind was salty. Salty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's justified, though. I think it's justified because everybody wants due recognition and everybody wants fairness. So I think right. even if you are acting kind of salty, I think it's, it's justified. Yeah, it comes from somewhere a lot of times. Uh, let's go on to fact number five. And this is my final fact. And if you have no idea who I'm referencing at this point, um, it's okay. We'll see what you can get from this last fact. And this is normally where I drop the goods. Um, this artist is well known for his array of elaborate hats and headgear. Professional appearances for concerts, interviews, and the like have prompted descriptions of him being the Mad Hatter for his love of headgear. Though it has been criticized for wearing certain headdresses by Native Americans. Mm. Of course. The music video for uh, a song that I can't name because it's really, really popular. It's probably the biggest single in the United States, and that really brought him on the scene there. Um, managed to capture the song's title by using bizarre choreography, confusing scene changes, and sometimes putting off imagery. It helped raise the band to newfound popularity and acclaim. So, yeah, there were black crows flying around, moving floors, movement without moving. If you remember, a very big clue there. <laughs> All right, let's keep it going. And just looking at a few of the band's album titles, you can tell that science fiction has had some kind of role in their music all along. Uh, some of the titles like The Return of the Space Cowboy and funk odyssey <laughs> so that just kind of screams the answer for those who are inclined uh let's keep it going so the name of this artist mm. not the band mm. but the name of the artist is pronounced by two letters of the english alphabet <laughs> wow <laughs> so yeah i think that this last fact gave away some really big clues those who have heard the music and have seen the video that i was referencing and know who these guys are this is it so i'm gonna go ahead and in my trivia here and i'm gonna turn the mic over to you mr liu who would you guess that it is <laughs> i think you have successfully <laughs> completed your mission <laughs> I have no idea at all. <laughs> Do you want to try your hand at the internet? Okay. 30 seconds? Okay. <laughs> Just a minute. Now. All right. Go for it. 30. 25. 20. 15. 10. 5. Four, three, two, one. Oh, he's got this smug look on his face, folks. I think he might have found something. It's <laughs> <to> <laughs> okay. saving grace. The internet was working this time, folks. Yes. Yeah, I think I got it. 
All right. So, Mr. Liu, go ahead and drop it. So the answer is Jamiroquai. <laughs> you got it. Jamiroquai, an English funk and acid jazz band from London, fronted by vocalist J.K. Formed in 1992, they were prominent in the London-based funk and acid jazz movements of the 1990s. As of 2017, they sold more than 26 million albums worldwide. Their third album, Traveling Without Moving, received a Guinness World Record as the best-selling funk album in history. Well, I did not know that. <laughs> oh, man. And I got a few tracks that I would like to share from this really unique band. And I tell you, when I first heard their music, I was just kind of like, wow, I love the sound and the feel. And it's hard to explain. It brings you back to a different time, but it still has, as I mentioned before, a contemporary twist. So if we got time, I'd like to share a few tracks. First up is Seven Days in Sunny June, and that will be followed by Star Child. And if there's time, I'd like to share a little bit of a song called all right. Check it out.
And that was All Right by Jameer Rakwai. I absolutely love this song. I mean, just where it takes me, the melody, the beat, and just, I don't know, it's timeless in a way. It doesn't really have a contemporary sound. It doesn't only have a 70s sound to it, but it's just uh, somewhere in between. It's just, it's eternal, man. I, I dig it. Yes, I second everything you just said. And also earlier, I think you mentioned that their music is kind of timeless. Yeah, I think timeless would be a very good description for that particular track as well. Mm. Um, It doesn't remind me of any particular era, but I just know that it sounds very, very interesting, very pleasant to my ears, and I want to be lost in this track forever. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that's that's a great way to end that. (laughs) All right, man, so... Let's go ahead and move on to your artist. Who you got? Okay. Like I said, she is very influential when it comes to Chinese pop music. So I'm just very glad that I got the chance to introduce her to you Mm. because I don't think you're very familiar with her. Uh Uh-oh. All right. So the first clue is from NetEase and Baidu Baiku. This artist first participated in a singing competition in Hong Kong when she was just 15 years old. Okay. 15. She didn't win, but she was second runner-up, and that was enough for her to get a record deal. Now, what's interesting is that the song she sang in that competition was Bottoms Up, and it was originally by an artist we already covered on this show. Okay. <laughs> so, to make your guessing a little bit easier, I'll just give you the name. It was Sally Ye. Sally Ye. Okay. Yeah. So, Bottoms Up was originally by Sally Ye. So, in a sense, you can say that Sally Ye helped the singer jumpstart her singing career. Obviously, Sally was a bit older and could be considered the singer's predecessor. Mm-hmm. But there's no friction or jealousy between these two whatsoever. At the peak of their careers, they actually did a duet together. Kind of reminds me of Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey when they worked together. Okay. On When You Believe. So then they were they're pretty prominent singers here. Yeah. In China. They both have the term diva attached to them in a positive sense, of course. Mm. So the second clue is from Baidu Baiku and IMDb. This artist's music career was relatively smooth in the beginning. She released her debut album in 1990, and most of her songs were Cantonese versions of popular Japanese songs at the time. Okay. Mm -hmm. The record company wanted to play it safe, so she did not have much choice in terms of what kind of songs she got to sing. Sure enough, the singles did well, and she had some hits, but she was not happy about that. So in 1994, she released her fifth album. So by that time, the lead single, Ten Commitments, was still adapted from a popular Japanese song. So Ten Commitments. No, Ten Commandments. Oh, Ten Commandments. Mm. Okay, that sounds a bit biblical. And you mentioned that her first album was in 1990 and her fifth album. So she had four albums where she couldn't sing the kind of music that she wanted to sing. Exactly. Okay. And this goes back to what I said earlier. Yeah. She got a very similar story to JK. You just kind of feel like a robot and just producing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So to stop feeling suffocated, she did a remix version and shot a very, shall we say, out there kind of music video. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) This caused a lot of controversy and was later banned by radio and TV stations in Hong Kong. Mm. Now, I don't find that surprising at all because her favorite artist 
and biggest musical influence at the time was Madonna. Yeah, I was thinking this. I was thinking that. <laughs> But here's something that does surprise me: her other biggest music influence is Katie Lang. Okay. So that's like night and day. Okay, so、uh, Katie Lang is a lot more conservative and traditional, or no? Katie Lang has nothing to do with pop. Let's just put it this way. Okay. Yeah. So that's why I kept saying it's like night and day. Okay. So this next clue is from Douban and by Dubai Cup. Due to the Ten Commandments, brouhaha,、uh, some other problems. Her relationship with the record company was quite tense, as you can imagine. At one point, she was forced to do no work at all for almost an entire year. She knew she had to switch to a different record company, so she eventually picked Warner and made the move in 1995. And that turned out to be one of her best decisions ever, because she was popular before. But after she switched to Warner, she became a bona fide diva, so、okay. to speak. So she could come into her own and do the kind of music that she wanted to do, right?、Mm-hmm. Okay. And her first album after switching to Warner went platinum within a week,、mm-hmm. and it has remained one of the best-selling albums of all time in Hong Kong to this very day. Okay.、Hmm. And I guess you can't name that album. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and Warner also helped her launch her first Mandarin album in 1996. That was an even bigger success because now she wasn't just popular in Hong Kong; she was also popular in a household name on the Chinese mainland, and we know that's a much bigger market.、Mm-hmm. So the lead single from that album was "Ubiquitous." I won't tell you the name, of course, but I will tell you that she sported shiny red hair on that album cover, and it was an iconic image in Chinese pop music history. I think that might have given it away for a lot of Chinese listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Because obviously we don't have redheads here, right?、Mm-hmm. So the next clue. Well, actually, I could definitely tell you a whole lot more about her singing career. Not to mention that she had a fantastic movie career as well.、Mm-hmm. But I think you are much more interested in personal stories, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's go that route. This next clue is from Baidu Baiku and reliable fan sites. Okay, reliable. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> When this artist signed the contract with her first record company, she got to know a fellow singer from the same company. They quickly became an item. Now, nobody knew at the time that this would go on to become an iconic relationship. They have been on again, off again, so many times that I honestly lost count. <laughs> But what's important is that after more than 30 years,、mm-hmm. they are still together. Really? Uh huh. Wow. But four years ago, that was in 2019, they ran into their biggest crisis ever, as the husband was caught cheating with an actress.、Mm. It was not just showbiz news; it was front page news in Hong Kong. Almost everyone thought the relationship had finally run its course and a divorce was inevitable, but this artist made a different choice. She forgave her husband and stayed in the marriage. And four years on, they are still married. Wow, that takes a whole lot of something:、um, love, commitments, forgiveness. I mean, a lot of those commandments. I mean, all of that rolled up into because I just a lot of people just aren't able to do that. That's normally a deal breaker for most people. 
Yeah. You know, and um, it, that normally would require a lot of counseling that would require a lot of intervention to be able to just carry on with that. I mean, for normal people, people who are not in the spotlight, people who are not celebrities, it's hard. But mm-hmm. I would imagine for people who are of the kind of status that they're in. A lot of criticism, fans, everybody's going to have an opinion and throw it at you. And to be able to just weather through that and stand on your own conviction, I don't know. I think that that's pretty ironclad. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. A lot of fans actually turned on her and saying things like, "How can you just forgive somebody like that? You're sending a bad message,、mm. as if you're saying, you know, it's okay to cheat as long as you have a good wife who will always forgive you. Then everything is going to be fine. So that's certainly not the message you want to spread out there. But she said nothing. She、mm. just kept her mouth shut, and she stayed married. And actually, just a few months ago, she released a new single. Reflecting on love from a philosophical point of view. So I think if anybody wants to understand why she made that decision to stay、yeah. in marriage, they should listen to that song. You know, I just read a book called The Five Love Languages, and in that book, you know, I think everyone has a specific need. When it comes to affection, and sometimes we can neglect the person that we love the most in the way that they need us to love them, and so sometimes these things happen. And perhaps with certain interventions, you can see what's lacking, and if it's repaired in time, then the relationship can go on. But yeah, as you as we just talked about, it's really hard. Yeah. So. Like I said, this is an iconic relationship, and I don't use this word flippantly. It really is iconic. <laughs> and this next clue is from Doban. This artist co-starred with Andy Lau in a series of movies, and all of them were box office hits. One was particularly memorable as they both had to put on fat suits、mm. for their characters. So that film came out in 2001, and body shame was not nearly as commonplace a theme. As it is today in pop culture, so this artist also sang this theme song, and it later became one of her signature songs. It's called "Beautiful for Life." It's also my personal favorite.、Mm. I'm mentioning this because, in a certain sense, you can say that life was imitating art. This artist was obsessed with losing weight. Oh boy! And she often exercised for hours on end. In 2005, a movie project she put so much heart and soul into. Actually, turned out to be a complete disaster.、Mm. So that marked the beginning of a dark period for her. Her relationship woes also made things worse, and she was soon diagnosed with clinical depression.、Mm. Despite all this, she was still trying to lose weight.、Mm. And at one point, she barely weighed 35 kilos.、Uh, so that's less than 80 pounds. Yeah, anorexia for sure.、Mm-hmm. Interesting enough, it was just the weight. She once famously poked fun at her A cup. At a concert, and I still remember that moment vividly. So I'm saying this because I think it's just a very good example to illustrate that human beings are complex. So on the one hand, you can be obsessed with losing weight, but on the other hand, you don't mind that people are saying you have a flat chest.、Mm. So it's almost like a mixed message.、Yeah. So do you care about your looks or do you not? Hence, you know, complex human nature. Right. Yeah, it is quite complex. I can't put my finger on it because most of the time, people strive, especially in that position, they strive. To be the image of what is hot at that time, and if they can put a little bit of money into that area of their body to make themselves marketable or whatever, they do it. But yeah, this artist seems a bit abstract. But anyway, like I said, once she was diagnosed with clinical depression, everybody knew that it was a serious problem,、yeah. and she was going through a hard time. So this next clue is from Wikipedia. 
This artist eventually overcame depression and got back on her feet again. It was in no small part due to her faith. She wasn't super religious before, but after that crisis, where she stopped working for more than a year, she became a born-again Christian.、Mm. That's her own words. And since then, she has been releasing Christian songs in addition to her regular pop music. In fact, her first official comeback album was a Christian album through and through. It was called Faith. It went platinum. Get this in just one day. Oh wow! Truly mind-boggling. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the title track "Faith" was a hip-hop song featuring one of Hong Kong's local MCs. It's not the first time this artist has collaborated with hip-hop artists. In a sense, she's really the trailblazer who made hip-hop much more accessible and popular in Cantopop. pop.、Mm. So I think just for that. Particular reason she will always be remembered in the history of pop music in Hong Kong as well. Wow, I can't believe that we missed this artist so far. I'm a little bit surprised. Right. Well, I just want to say also that I love the angles and the depth that you go to bring out some of the lives of these particular artists because I think if we just stick with their music achievements, achievements, then I mean for people like me who's kind of outside from a different country, different culture, it's a little bit difficult. To penetrate, so I, I yeah, I really appreciate the info here. Yeah, and I really appreciate you saying that. And I think you will enjoy this last clue very much as well. Okay. So this is from Sina.com. This artist has plenty of other non-showbiz-related highlights too. For me, I think 2009 definitely stood out. In April, she went to some remote villages in Yunnan Province to teach the local kids of the E ethnic group. And in September, she went to Ethiopia. And visited kids who had AIDS.、Mm. And in October, she came to Beijing to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the founding of the New China. She even wrote a message of "Long live China" <laughs> to express her pride in our country and her Chinese identity. All right, all right. Well, that that brings you to the end of your facts, right? Right.、Okay. So, do you have any clue? Not at all, but I'm going to take advantage of this 30 seconds. All right, One, time's up. Okay. All right. I think I have a name, and it's a little bit misleading because the first name that came up was an artist that we covered already. So I was like, okay, this is not. <laughs> I hope Mr. Liu didn't do research on someone that we've already done. But another name has. Oh, oh, oh. And I can't even click onto the link because I think it's blocked. But、um, I'm going to go off of the name that I see here. But、um, I see a Jin Lee. Not sure if that's correct, but that's kind of what I see here. Unfortunately, that is not、uh, the correct answer. <laughs> but I, I have to admit that I'm not particularly familiar with Jin Lee. But her Chinese name is much better known. It's Li Xingar. 
So、uh, in case our listeners are more familiar with her Chinese name, so that's the artist for you. Okay, Jin Li Li Xinger. So she's also from Canton. She's from Hong Kong. She's from Hong Kong, and she's famous for Canton pop、okay. music. Okay, <laughs> so it wasn't way off, but kind of way off. <laughs> so the correct answer is actually Sammy Cheng. So Cheng Shouwen is one of the most influential Canton pop and Mandol pop singers with a fantastic acting career to boot. She has won all the major singing and acting awards in the Chinese showbiz circle. So we're going to hear two of her songs. The first one is called "Romeo and Juliet in Sarajevo," and the second one is called "Me." In case you didn't know before, "Me" is her nickname. Oh, okay. Is one of her nicknames. Sounds like she was just singing about me. Like this song is about me, right? <laughs> but but it's spelled M-I, so that's her nickname, not M-E. All right, all right. Before we hear the tracks, Mr. Liu, I want to thank you again for joining me on the show. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Pop Muse, and we look forward to you joining us for the next show. I'm TJ Reed. I'm Liu Yan. Take it easy, folks. We will see you next time.